came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, hello. hello. Hey. Yeah, we have an extra guest, look, <laughs> the, the, the cat guest. Oh, yeah. Hi, hi, cat. This is great. We've never had cats on the podcast yet, so thanks for bringing your next guest with you. Hi, Jason. Hi, Camila. Hello. Hello, hello. Yeah, good I'm, to be with you all again. Yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed, Jason. That you know, last time you kind of promised us that you're going to choreograph a little dance that we can all do when we start an episode, and no instruction has followed. So even the next episode, Camila and I, you know, the anticipation is killing us. I was just freestyling before we came on screen. Oh. Okay, right. We want to see it. We want to see it live next time. You know, I'm sure everybody is <laughs> as, as excited yeah. as we are. I'm anyway, sure. welcome to season seven, six, season seven, episode six. So we're yeah. two thirds kind of through the season now, right? We only have a couple more live streams and then the final episode, which is, of course, also the participation episode. So if you haven't sent us your audio clips yet, don't forget to do that. Because it will be fun. You know, we love participation episodes. But yeah, let's talk about today's episode, Jason. Yeah, for sure. And like reading books together is something that we care a lot about and find inspiring. And we're just really looking forward to continuing the conversation from from last time as well, because there's a lot of connections, I think, between the last book that we read by Malcolm Ferdinand and this book today. And it furthers this idea of reading outside of disaster studies, where most of our audience and people that engage with the podcast are situated in some way. And so we're talking about the second book today that you all helped us to choose in the polls that we ran earlier in the year, which is Pollutionist Colonialism by Max Liberon, a book that definitely made a huge splash on Twitter. Everybody seems to be reading it. So of course, it wasn't really a surprise that it was voted by our audience. Yeah, for sure. And joining us today for the discussion, we have Dr. Naomi Bautista Gonzalez. Naomi, last time you joined us in season six, you were just about submitting your PhD, right? So now yeah. you're a doctor. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I was. I almost forgot when you said it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. I'm a doctor now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Congratulations. And um, so for those of you in the audience who don't know Naomi, and Naomi is French, an immigrant settler in Canada. And this is actually really important for this book, right? We will be discussing later today. They recently graduated from a PhD in anthropology, and their research is positioned in the field of the applied anthropology of disasters with a feminist and anti-colonial perspective. And Naomi has a, an assistant, not the assistant, I've simply decided to take a nap or a break, but probably she'll come back, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. see, the assistant knows. Still helping. Yeah. Still helping. Welcome back. It's great to have you back. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here to discuss this wonderful book. Amazing, exciting. So let's let's get done with this. Well, Camilo, you know the drill. Do it, I know the drill. So I, I know. 
However, the, because the responsibility has been to, to the audience to choose the books, which is super nice, my humble task is just to maybe sort of introduce the reason why. This one already mentioned something already important. The book is, has since out has been a very big splash on social media. And of course, the reason is probably multiple. It's a very well written book, quite difficult to read, to digest, to get through. And therefore, I think is a book that call for collective reading is actually the perfect book to be the platform through think tank, think through the relationship that uh, science, broadly speaking, has with land. And I really think this is probably one of the reasons why was sort of suggested. Two kind of very, I've encountered by chance the book and the work of Max Liborna for two reasons. The first reason was that I was looking at something around waste and to a certain extent, the book stays within the realm of waste studies. And is quite interesting because get through the reflections around the logistic, the scientific, but also the political aesthetics of waste. And I think that is a very interesting generations of reflections or spillover of reflections that cut across environmental studies, justice studies, but also of course disasters studies. The second one is that it's written in a very personal tone and is a very exercise of first voice. And another very interesting addition to me was that it's written can allow for multiple readings. And one of the multiple readings is this idea of entering from the text or from the notes to a certain extent where you can have a multiple ways of reading the beautiful prose, but also the sharp political and sharp scientific reflection on that is offering. And third, probably, as I said, is because land is really at the center. And what I found extremely interesting is that the Liborian and the work that she does is in relation to the relationship with land. So land is never static, fixed, oriented, flat, if you want, but it's really something that cut across a numbers of relation with goods, with things, uh, with uh, ancestors, with stories, with narratives, and with perspectives, which I think is uh, super interesting. Mm, following the work through the laboratory that Liborian is using work is clear. It uh, is also a way of anticipating and putting forward, I would say, an agenda of research ethics put it in this way, an agenda of how research can be performed, can be thought, can be shared. And in a way it becomes slightly pedagogical, pedagogical in the sense that is able to cater the numbers of very interesting tonality and voices. So the reason is that is a fantastic tool that I found or platforms or an object as you want to take it to reflect across different scales to what is colonialism cert very much, but certainly what is research. If I would be kind of bold or provocative, it's certainly a book that has to be read by in research committees and in research training for, you know, anybody that approach engaging with realities, complex or less. And certainly it's, it's a book that could tell and provoke a numbers of reflection with disaster studies because of the connection with land. And land is taking as a relation, cosmological, but also very physical and specifically very connected with human stories and relation. And therefore the responsibility of us in relation to land, human and not, 
to me, remain a very interesting center to be debated in their fourth book. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for the reflection, for the introduction, Camilo. And there are quite a few things I'm sure we will unpack as we're talking about this today. Now, I, mean, I want to come to you next. What did you think about the book? Kind of how did you perceive it? Well, I... I loved it first. I really loved reading it. And one one aspect that I really enjoyed is that I when I read a book, I always feel that it's a connection to the author. And I like that in this book, this is made explicit. Like Maxime Liboiron is really writing in a way that they are connecting with the readers and exchanging with us. So that's really something that I really enjoyed. And the subject itself, like how to do research without reinforcing colonialism, without reinforcing systemic oppressions and things like that. It's something that I've been thinking about since I started my, uh, not even my PhD, but even my master's degree, especially because of my positionality, because as you said, Denia, at the beginning, I am French. I'm from France and I immigrated in Canada to do my first, my master's research and then my PhD research. And I, so first I arrived in a place that was indigenous land that has been stolen through colonialism and was working with indigenous people, indigenous communities, indigenous organizations for my research and for work. So I had to think about, it was important for me to think about that and to find ways to do my research in a way that was not reinforcing that. And ideally that was kind of challenging colonialism and challenging all those uh, structures. And what I love about this book is that it gives practical strategies to do that, practical, practical practices, sorry, it's like a repetition, but because I've read a lot of books that help my reflection, help my research practice from indigenous scholars about indigenous methodologies, how to work with indigenous people, etc. But as Max Liboiron said in the book at one point, it's not always something that you can apply or you can understand completely, especially when you're not from when you're not indigenous, when you're not from this specific indigenous nation from that the author is from. And this book, Abolitionist Colonialism, gives more elements that are more practical, that allowed me to make sense of something that I did not understand or help me on some kind of theoretical reflection in more practical things. So that's something that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah. I think I'm gonna. Great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And indeed, you know, the kind of the practice element was core to it. And I guess this is what we've been trying to achieve the discussion on practice we've been trying to achieve in, in this particular season. So, again, something to return to as we unpack the book. Jason, what about you? Yeah, I really appreciate the reflection so far. And one of the things that really got me thinking was just the way the lab was always self reflecting, always questioning whether they were contributing to systems of oppression. And I haven't seen that too much from labs who do this kind of work as well. Mm. So it really struck me from that they were doing this kind of work that generally is associated with very positivist ontologies and epistemologies, but they were undermining in a lot of ways, the institution, the goals of the settler the goals of the settler colonial institution in the way that they do research, but still like understanding that they're still part of the system as well. And I, I just thought that back and forth kind of wrestling with the, with that issue was great to see and made me think about my own research and how to operate within a, an institution that 
expects you to act in a certain way and to produce value for them in a certain way and how do you how do you, how and where do you fight that the other thing was that i really appreciated and made me think more deeply was just how like where they were talking about settler access and to land to to resources to knowledge to pursue settler goals and like how many of us in disaster studies are doing exactly that right and and then also the alignment with the growth paradigm and this goes i think connects with the previous book that we read about kind of creating plantations and and she and certainly it's about the idea of pollution and having a sink so one of the ways in which this book was looking at the settler access was to find a sink for waste you know but you could also apply it to the previous book that we read by Malcolm Ferdinand in terms of disposable people as to create value for capitalism so anyway I thought it was fascinating and made me think about my own research practice for sure for sure for me I start goodness <laughs> so much kind of to say and you've said a lot all of you said a lot of what I kind of wanted to say but first of all I guess I have to admit I have to be honest that I had a bit of a kind of love-hate relationship with the book and I'll tell you why in a second but overall I learned a lot. It was pretty much every page there would be something exciting, like a fact, you know, or a methodological note or a reference. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is interesting. This is very exciting. I didn't know that. And it doesn't happen very often, you know, not because I know much, but somehow I guess the kind of the discussions, the discourses within which we operate and within which we read out, you know, they more or less with each other, right? And also it wasn't your kind of normal theoretical, um, text on kind of why capitalism is bad right and that, but really a reflection on and description of practice and Naomi I think explained this so well already in your reflection and in particular the section on obligations was something that I would really like to discuss today because it kind of made me think about my own obligations and obligations as a kind of human being obligations as a disaster researcher obligations as a scholar you know what obligations do we have and to whom um, and do we ever actually discuss them so Maybe we can come back to this later. But so what I love and what I hated is the way that the book is written. So I love footnotes, right? But I, at the same time, I also struggle with them so much because I feel like footnotes kind of require participation in two parallel conversations. And my brain just cannot do that, right? So there is kind of a, the main text conversation and then there are tangents, which I find really easy to navigate when I listen to somebody, right? Like in a speech, but not at all easy in writing. I don't know if any of you ever read Dimir Nabokov's Pale Fire. No, have, have you read it? It's basically the 30 page poem. And then it has almost 200 pages of footnotes. You know, check it out fascinating and of course you know max didn't quite take that you know went to that level but i kept thinking oh i want to know more about this right kind of about the things that she's raising in the footnote or you know i wish it was a separate book or i wish it was kind of a separate chapter or maybe i could just have a chat with somebody about it. and so i loved that i wanted to discuss all these footnotes but i also found it really hard to be so distracted because i very often i literally couldn't remember what the main text was about because i kind of got to involve this footnote but what i also want to mention is references like wow absolutely I, this is the, i don't really have quite enough adjectives to describe you know how excited i was by the references 
And Max's book really made me think, and I go back to Catherine McKittrick's essay from her collection, Dear Science and Other Stories. And I just want to read a very quick paragraph from Catherine McKittrick's essay, which is called Footnotes, Books and Papers Scattered About the Floor. What if the practice of referencing, sourcing and crediting is always bursting with intellectual life and takes us outside ourselves? What if we read outside ourselves not for ourselves, but to actively unknow ourselves, to unhinge, and thus come to know each other intellectually, inside and outside the academy, as collaborators of collective and generous and capacious stories. Unknowing ourselves, the unhinges, the unhinging opens up a different conversation about why we do what we do here in the first place. What despises us, not focusing on reparation of the self alone, but instead sharing information and stories and resources to build the capacity for social change. Alternative outcomes, the unhinging, unknowing ourselves, opens up learning processes that are uninterested in a self that is economized by citations. And still, displacing the self, unknowing who we are, is awful. It is indeterminate and unpredictable and lonely. Togetherness can be difficult and lonely too. Citing is not easy. Referencing is hard. And I think Max has really succeeded in this unknown, right? And kind of in, in, in undoing the known. And it was wonderful. And I wish that more of the researchers would consider the referencing and the thinking behind the referencing and the kind of the real acknowledgement of words and ideas and, you know, thanking for these words and ideas that, that I found in this book. I think, yeah, I'll stop there. Can I just say something course, about the, the footnotes? Because usually I don't like footnotes. I really don't like them. And this book made me really like footnotes. <laughs> so it's kind of the opposite. But I agree with the fact that it's kind of hard because it creates like kind of a multidimensional <laughs> conversation like with the author. But that's also what creates the more interactive like feeling of the book. But to be honest, like when I was trying to like finish the book for the conversation today, a little bit last minute, I kind of stopped reading the footnote. But I would say that it's also what makes me want to read it again. So I'm going to read it again and this time focus more on the footnotes to have this other kind of conversation. So and also quickly, it's they, them. And Max de Boiron used they, them. They, okay. Yeah. Right. Thanks, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, the footnotes, it's a very specific thing in this book. It's very <laughs> particular. Fascinating. Yeah, the kind of the conversation that provides. Camilo, go. Well, just to follow up this, I think my, I also agree. The What I think is interesting is the what they do is a very interesting narrative through thinking, I think, which is more than the reference is beyond the capacity to think with others and through others reflection, but is really to celebrate, I think, the encounter between different sets of thoughts. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent is actually what is not written that I think is important to, or the one that is not immediately learn through the citation but it's what that citation left to the thinking and sometimes for Liborian my understanding is that the thinking is both the 
you know, materializing the writing into the book, into the conversation, but specifically beyond that. Uh, so the work that they do on the lab and the institutional construction of that, which I think is always present in the text, but never at the center of the text. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a ghost. Uh, and I found it extremely interesting because it makes me, you know, wow, I want to know more, that would be fantastic, but it's not there. So you're not completely satisfied with what you read in there and you want to know more. And I think that is a very interesting relation that the narrative that the text is doing with with the audience, with the reader or with the engagement. I also like this very statement that they do at the beginning where they say, we want to do science against the science. Uh, it's very bold, very affirmative, and I found it interesting for the reason that it's kind of very experimental, and I don't know if experimental is a correct word, but it's, it's a mix, it's kind of a rap or a jazz, no? The rhythm of the text is always moving from something very personal, very institutional, other people thinking, then the land. It's really engaging and therefore tiring, requires a lot of labor. To, to read the labor of trust to the reader, labor of love, of course, to the different author, but it's not a passive reading. That's what I'm saying. Is quite. That's why I also experimented a sort of tiredness. But tiredness is the wrong word. Is the fact that you want to know more, but you had to labor within the text. And I think the thanks to me is also the missing point, which is always I thank people because they have been made me think to a certain extent. So they're not that mean a gift that is for free or a gift that is just there and you pick it up in a sort of very exchange use value, but it's really a thank that is related to more to a gift, I would say. So it kind of the relationship to this part of the text was more to to gift. And the other thing which I found it interesting is that she's not they're not actually continuously moving to methodology. It's not a flat methodological book. Methodology is kind of a black bone, something that remains floating to the text because the center is this continuous provocation on the pollution. And I find it extremely interesting that there is a weaving between an offering very thorough, very interesting, very political around the methodology, institutional, research, ethical in the different formulation, but certainly very centered to the pollution. So very centered to the topic, to the physical material conditions that they are experiencing in doing the research. So it's not a methodology book while is a methodology book. It's a pollution book while isn't a pollution book. And this kind of mimic makes to me a very interesting format of, of writing, presenting research or elaborating the text. It's kind of very interesting, literally poetic, mm-hmm. political, very personal text. It's a lot. It's many things. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. And that's perhaps where the kind of the challenge of it, right? As you say, because, but on the other hand, that's what the rest of us, I guess, have been missing out, right? In our writing or, you know, many of us in that it's extremely difficult, say, to mix that your personal kind of story, your positionality, right? With the scientific knowledge that you have. And this was very kind of factual scientifically, which I found fascinating in a sense that would be engaging for the reader, in particular, non-academic readers, sorry, because we know that lots of academics kind of reject the personal story, right? The kind of personal doesn't, um, 
doesn't have a right to exist because don't forget, you know, we all have to remain really, really objective, right? And follow the kind of the Western dogmas. Yeah. And I'm sure we all had conversations, you know, kind of in our heads or perhaps by emails with different reviewers who reject the sort of story that Marx built here that really intermingles everything. And it really made me think, this book really made me think about how we how we talk about disasters without very often intermingling. There is now, you know, it's great to see the kind of the new research that, that really tries to bring forward lots of things that, you know, the political and the personal and scientific. But still, there is very little in the disaster literature that really allows us to engage in this conversation at this kind of level. I think it's really a practice. Like, it's really by doing it that you learn how to do it and that it becomes more kind of a usual thing to do because now I'm I realize that I've done it a lot and I'm in a context working with indigenous communities in indigenous studies where it's something that ev everyone is kind of doing so and I but the other challenge that I, I am kind of struggling with a little bit always is to position myself and share my like the personal experience that kind of is important for to understand my research and understand what I'm sharing, but not put myself at the center of what I'm mm. writing, of what I'm sharing, because I'm working on the experience of forest fires by an indigenous community, but the Atikamek community of Omentashi, and I'm working with the experience of the forest firefighters of the provincial organization. So yeah, I have to share where I come from, where I come from, and what is my position in that but I'm not the center of my research. So that's mm. a balance. Also, when you stop doing it, you have to find this balance of like giving the information that's necessary, but not putting yourself at the center of the conversation. One thing I wanted to come back to, Ksenia, was about obligations, because the, mm. the book is like really grounded in um, just unpacking and thinking about the relationships that we have with each other, with people with different identities, with other forms of life, and the fact that we don't all have the same responsibilities. And I thought that was something interesting, like in discussing the way that their lab work and how different individuals within the lab have different responsibilities mm -hmm. towards other people and other communities. And everybody is not, like there's not a protocol that everybody follows in the same way but it's like di differentiated responsibilities and obligations and i think that's really fascinating to to implement that in a scientific lab um, mm. or because I, I haven't seen something like that done before it's really cool no absolutely and you know the paragraph that i made which kind of really struck me you know and really made me think i kind of had to stop and just think about what obligation is is in chapter three and max right mm. Compromise is what happens mm. when you have obligations to incommensurabilities. Incommensurability means things do not share a common ground for judgment or comparison. That is projects that simply cannot speak to one another, cannot be aligned or allied. Anti-colonialism within dominant science, diversity work in a racist institution, humility in a tenure application, all are impossible bedfellows that are nonetheless crucial to pursue and indeed happen, yet should never be smoothed over or conflated in that pursuit. And it's, it stopped, you know, I had to really think about it because Max 
really kind of nail it on its head, right? This the impossible bedfellows is exactly the space where perhaps many of us are or find ourselves, right? Because, you know, we have to admit, I have to admit that I am a part of neoliberal academia, right? I kind of, I play by neoliberal academia rules because that's how promotion criteria works, because this is how we get research funding, because that's how we, fund, we get our publications. I smile a lot at meetings, right? And kind of try to make pleasant conversation, although I not necessarily always want to do that. And so we're kind of this part of the system that we're at the same time trying to challenge and which is difficult, but also, you know, Max writes, and that's right at the beginning introduction, that we isn't specific enough for obligation. And I love that, that we, because, well, we, we hide behind we quite easily, right? It's a nice, nice kind of invisibility cloak, if you wish. And I, yeah, you're, oh, go. yeah, no, I was gonna, because I think it connects with the question of sharing your own experience and positioning yourself, because that's necessary to understand your obligations. You have to understand where you are, what is your in the, this network of relationship, of privilege, of oppression, and stuff like that. And once you are, I mean, I say once you are clear with that, but it's a process that never stops. But when you are used to do that, I think you can start seeing your obligations and you can start seeing where you can act to challenge more like the injustice and stuff like that. Or when you can like just stop smiling and just say what you have to say, you know, because you're like, okay, here I know where I, my what my position is and I know I, I can act on this aspect. Or so, so I think it's really connected to that, like positioning yourself and understanding that your experience and what you do, what you say in research is part of the research you're doing, is part of the work you're doing, can help you see where your obligations are and what you can do to challenge like oppressions and colonialism and that, including like relationship with yeah, the land and relationship with the institution, with more, more global things. And it kind of help you see also the position of other people and see the different, like the nuance in the we, like the we, yeah, it's not mm. like homogeneous and you can see that, I think, but it's right. tough, but it's a practice once again. I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you spotted on a very fundamental level. There is the fact that she coupled very much obligations with orientations too, which I found it also interesting. And probably orientation is connected with, you know, a version of Sarah Ahmed feminism, reflection, mm. which I think is also very interesting. But there is a point that I want to read at last because I think it's interesting that around chapter three, just following the part that Xenia, you quote, and she, they said, Max said, I understand commitment to anti-colonial science as one rooted in incommensurability, but nevertheless move forward with, in and around impossible bedfellows. I think that moving in with, in around, I think is very important gesture of orientation to a certain extent. And following that later, she said, I understand the ethics of incommensurability as one that dig into difference and maintain the difference while also trying to stay in good mm -hmm. relation. And this good relation is not a, you know, just a safe comfort zone is good relation with bedfellows, you know, is good relation with uh, 
with a very completely different set of alterity. And I think that orientation is labor, is passion, is tough, is difficulties, is obstacles, is a try, is not solution. And I like that idea, is not offering, you know, direct manualistic solutions, right? But actually really a politics, a politics of possibilities, ideas. Of course, when she gets into the peer review community model is also something quite interesting and very practical, as you were saying. But I think the main message is this with, through, and in, that I found it extremely special and actually extremely valuable for many other disciplines, including the disaster studies, which is not just a simple, you know, Haraway, stay with the trouble. No, that's okay. Fair enough. We're all in, in the same. Because that is exactly the we. Who is we? The differences within the two, the intersection, the depth to the intersectionalities that still that we are calling is really an interesting and important element. And the obligation is actually the tool that you, and therefore what they use, the word of you know, the community peer review became an obligation towards in the mode of operation of the laboratory, which is not the fundamental, but is an obligation to start with and navigate in that complexity. And is it painful? And I think that is the experiment that the laboratory does, is that we do what we can through what we, with the material that we have, but we're not stopping to the obstacles and this is probably the connection that I have that Sina was saying. We're all part of a different, you know, neoliberal, you know, institutions of different sorts. But the question that I'm always asking myself are do we do enough to come through the different obstacles that we get through? Sometimes I think I, I always provoke myself with that. Are we doing enough to go through the obstacles and the Kafkian, if you want, uh, troubles that those institutions are having? Maybe we stop often to, and this is a provocation I'm offering to you, because when you read books like that, you definitely want to start a fight. You know, you want to, you know, get active into that thing, but still, are we enough? Are we tired enough? Are, you know, the exhaustion and the tiredness that individuals are having within institution is also very important. So we do have to find our own institution. We do have to clear our own laboratory you know there are numbers of other interesting provocations to that maybe absolutely no and this is interesting for us as we've been discussing quite a lot the kind of the power of mobilization right and jason and i talk a lot about solidarity and care you know and to what extent all this anger and this tiredness can contribute to this but i want to move us on to the point that camilla and you both made in your reflection and that i'd like us to talk maybe a little bit more about the lens but also the time, right, which I think none of us perhaps mentioned. And Max writes with chapter one that the future is reserved for settler gold colonized in advance. Risk management, disaster plans, homeland security and other securities all share managerial ontologies dedicated to containing time for chosen future. <clears throat> right. So how do we kind of how do we think about this in disaster scholarship, you know, how do we reconcile the land with a big L and perhaps the time with a big T, right, if we may, to undo the chosen futures? Well, I mean, I would say that one of the first thing I would do would be to engage indigenous people, indigenous organization in disasters management because and i've been so i've been working on forest fire management and it's so clear that it is built to protect a resource so the land is really seen as a resource 
the goal is to protect the forest because we need to exploit it to make money, like to simplify it. So, so there is a lot to change in this to make like this part of disaster management more like in a better relation to with a big L, like not the land as a resource. And I think also one thing that I would, I think it would be really important to challenge is that when you're working in disasters and emergency management, there is always this argument that used to say, this is an emergency, so we can't take the time to like think about those things, you know. We don't have time to think about like, respecting other culture or whatever is said. And I've encountered that a lot when I was working on forest fire and, you know, suggesting kind of changes to do in management because, well, no, but it's an emergency. We don't have time for that. So first, it's not true because you prepare for that in advance. So you're not only working <clears throat> during the emergency, but also, yeah, we have to change this relationship to time and to change this relationship to to the land and also the hazard that's impacting, that's kind of triggering the disaster or emergency situation. There is a relationship with that too. There is a relationship with fire. There is a relationship with the river that's kind of flooding or stuff like that. So we all have to think that a disaster is also in a network of relationships and it should be more at the center of disaster studies and disaster management, I feel. Mm. Very interesting. So what, so how do we kind of reconcile this? The question we've been asking, you know, for every book, right? That we've been discussing. What the, should the, we learn? Oh, yeah, go on, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. go ahead, okay. sorry. Yeah, okay, okay. And you know, the, the question will come to you since you kind of, you, you've started this whole reading together thing. A apart from the kind of, or together, I guess, with the practices that Max really encourages us to engage with, right? And the kind of reflections on, on the terminology that we use and the methodologies and the ethics. How do we introduce these ideas into disaster scholarship? Million dollar question, well, Camilla. <laughs> no, of course, I don't have any answer and I'm not even trying. <laughs> yeah, I would not be so cool. But I think it's an interesting question and maybe we can rephrase it or maybe one way of approaching it is to test or to provoke the reflection, as Naim was saying, that yes, disasters are relational stuff, whatever they are. And we are entangled in the numbers of relations uh, through the disasters. And I think this is more than a learning from a specific book. There is a moment in which Max says something like, I wish this book become useful. She doesn't use this word, no, but is she said, look, I wish that the reader is able to abstract something from my situated, because I think what is important is that Max works is really situated in a very specific, very landscape, very specific relationship between institution, land, the state, and the topic of pollution. So I don't think that the learning is a generalization or an abstraction, but it's really, sorry, it's not an abstraction, but it's a generalization to this idea of relation. So are we looking at disasters as relational machine, Deleuze would say? Are we able to entangle different relations through disasters beyond the discipline? And I think that what, this is the other second point, is that what I found interesting into the work that they 
suggest is can we get rid of some disciplinary boundaries finally and really think about transdisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity or any other words that sweet to to really take the object of the research which is in this case land in a very fundamental other points and i think that that to me would become a very interesting avenue to do that though the question about time is still very very prominent to a certain extent and this is probably the very difference of the difficulties that disaster studies has to deal with especially for those who work more in an emergency but definitely what is coming through many other disciplines is that we definitely need slow research or a research that is able to be slow into developing relationship with individual topics, times in a different manner. And therefore, the question is how to do research when the time is completely shrink and resources are completely devoted elsewhere. I think that is a question that is more than methodological, but is also to ask who is funding disasters that is research, where it goes to an anthropological backwards, you know, after the event rather than within the process of event. So I think that is a question that is very topical, very situated to the disciplines that we are having. So yes, generalization because of the relation, because of the ethics, because of the centrality of colonialism, which is still quite absent or yet emerging into the disaster studies, but probably the big question would be around time and around who is funding disaster research into into this kind of multi-transdisciplinarity boundaries Can I, yeah. <clears throat> it makes me think it made me it makes me think sorry about also the concept of scale that they develop in the book i think the concept of scale can be really helpful to kind of find them the best way to do that work because sometimes you are going to look at a specific scale it's like you're like no it's not working i cannot do you know, I cannot question colonialism right now. We are in the like the emergency kind of management phase and stuff. But if you look at a different scale, like a larger scale or somewhere else, I mean, I don't know how to phrase it, but just to change kind of what we are looking at or what we are focusing on or who we are kind of involving in, in, in the study can really change what we can do. And I think what we have to keep in mind too is that, and I feel that's something that we can see in the book also, that there are different kind of work, different kind of action that we can take at different moments and different places. And it's not always like a very kind of straightforward strategy but it should not stop me i don't know if I, I feel that i'm it's kind of confusing what i'm saying but like you know we should just do what we can do at any time and we cannot work on every aspect of the problem all the time but we should do what makes sense at this moment you know what i mean like because sometimes i feel that we are waiting for like okay no we have to change the whole thing because the whole thing is problematic but no and what they are doing with the clear lab is yeah, experimenting and, and trying to change things at a specific scale. And then, oh, there is an opening to change things at another scale. So I'm going to do that. And so it's kind of a lot of little actions, sometimes bigger actions, but they add up. And also the we, it's like a relation, it's like a relationship network. So if we are a lot of people working on different aspects, it's going to add up and it's going to make some kind of change. Just like just i'm just going to connect that to something that i realized is that seeing like capitalism and colonialism as like 
a network of relationship or something that's about relationship or things it, it's kind of, of a way to, to feel more hope you know that we can do something because i feel that when we see it as like a big system that's so much bigger than us and we don't know where to <clears throat> where to start and we feel that we cannot do anything if we see it as a relationship network if we see it as a relationship network we are part of it feels more possible to change it you know i don't know if you if it makes sense that makes sense no i was just thinking as well of one example from the book where they were saying that they had anticipated like a big fight with the irb and uh, so they prepared everything and it was probably to do with fish guts disposal or something yeah and, and then they put it in the irb and they were like oh that's great go for it yeah <laughs> it's like I think I have the same kind of anticipated or anticipation of a fight when, when I think about doing like participatory action research in Florida and I've had fights in the past, but it's like, how did I prepare in advance? And just makes me think about my own preparation for that. And like the education that I should be doing within my institution to like, not like exactly right when I need the approval, that's not the right time to do the education it's like all the time you should be preparing the grant in your institution for getting that irb so just made me reflect on my own practice of and it i think it relates to how we conceive of disaster as well like if we're trying to like talk about all of these things right when disaster as event is occurring then a lot of people will be like now is not the time right even though it may be you're not going to get a lot of traction so but then if we think of disaster as long-term process of accumulated risk, there's all sorts of points along that long time frame where mm. you can make interventions and change mm. things and getting people on your side and educating them slowly without them feeling attacked in the moment, you know? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And this is, you know, the kind of the, I guess parallel with what Naomi referred to, right? And what you were saying is that Max knows how many people see capitalism as just this monolith, right? And we sort of, we've got to tackle it. I think they write something with like our gentle bodies or something like that. Yeah. And yet, of course, it is not the case. And it's the same with a disaster, right? So here's a disaster and we've got to tackle it like it's monolithical structure, right? This event that just which is of course not the case but there is still resistance to understanding and this is why i really appreciate max's call for experimenting otherwise which mm. they refer to in the final chapter and i hope that this reading together would perhaps if not encouraged to experiment otherwise but maybe even think a little bit about it right even if kind of you know a few more people just sit down and think for half an hour what could be different and why and what is our obligation in in, in making that difference and how we can work together. How can we become we rather than these individual eyes to trying to tackle the monolith of capitalism, disaster, academia, you know, so many to choose from. Um, perhaps perhaps that, that, that would be better. And it, yeah, go on then. We can oh, sorry, sorry. final conclusion. Go on. Okay, so no, I, because I was just thinking about another element that Max developed in the book is about not focusing on harm and I think it could be really interesting for disaster studies to kind of make a change in direction in how we approach mm -hmm. disaster, not focus on harm, but focus more like on the system that's creating the harm. And it connects to the article written by Marino and Faz, 
about this vulnerability and outdated concept. Like, you know, to stop focusing on like this group of people is vulnerable and just focus on like, what is the system? What, what are the relationships that are creating this vulnerability, what we consider a vulnerability? And I think like focusing on that instead of focusing on harm on the people who are hurt the most and stuff like that could really help changing the direction and challenging the system of oppressions. Right. I think it could be yeah, like exactly. Yeah. And yeah, of course, much. vulnerability is our favorite topic, but we're not going to talk about it today because otherwise we will be here for 10 more hours and we'll not stop Jason. I'll do that. I know. Zip. Zip. And until next, next episode. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. And it, it, again, I think this, this book really made us all think about slightly different things, but also there were quite a lot of similarities. And so thank you, the audience, for choosing this book. and. I hope you enjoyed reading it together with us collectively as much as we did. And please join the conversations. It's been wonderful. We have two more episodes coming up in this season. So in two weeks time, we will be reading Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of Indignation and Estella Carpi will be joining the discussion. And then the final episode will be around Silvia Federici's Patriarchy of the, the series of essays where Federici is discussing Marxism and patriarchy. And also, we really want to know what you people are reading. So please join our audience episode, participation episode, and tell us about your favorite books, whether they're about disasters or not. What some theories you learned from these books? Um, follow us on Twitter and on any podcast app. This episode will be turned into an audio version and enjoy the rest of season seven. Thank you so much for joining us, Naomi, today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Max, for writing the book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.